My name is Abdil Leroy. Author, poet, narrator, voice actor, all-round creative genius. Hello and welcome to the Poet Prophetic Podcast. Today I'm celebrating a Chinese poet from the 8th century AD, and that was during China's so-called Golden Age of the Tang Dynasty. His name is Li Bai, and the Chinese have dubbed him Poet Immortal. I haven't talked much about my China connection yet on this podcast, but I lived and worked there for 10 years, and you can read about that in my book, Dueling the Dragon. I started off in China as an English teacher in the western province of Sichuan, and my first encounter with Li Bai was when a student gave me some famous verses of the poet and wrote them out in four different types of calligraphy for my birthday. And later, I came across another magical window into the life of Li Bai in the form of a novel, and I would go on to narrate that novel as an audiobook when I was in Beijing. It's called A Floating Life, The Adventures of Li Po by Simon Elegant. Li Po is an alternative rendering of the poet's name, Li Bai. I also got the opportunity in Beijing to interview Simon about his book. Here is our conversation from 2008. Enjoy. Simon, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So, first of all, I want to make a brief clarification. I'm using the name Li Bai, but the actual title of your book is A Floating Life, The Adventures of Li Po, is it? Or right. Bo? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, as you know, there are many different ways of transcribing Chinese into English, and his name was commonly referred to until recently as Li Bo. But yes, Li Bai is fine. If you talk to a Chinese nowadays, they say Li Bai, but particularly in the last few hundred years in English, when he's been known, he's been known as Li Bo. It's just a transcription problem. Okay. So, Simon, tell us a bit about yourself. Where are you from? Well, rather like my favorite poet, I'm a bit of a, uh, a mongrel. Li Bai was born actually in what is now probably Afghanistan, Okay. Well, somewhere out there in the West, and his alienness was always part of his charm to mm. a lot of Chinese and maybe contributed a great deal to his artistic contributions. I was actually born in Hong Kong. My father was a reporter, which is what I am now, and he was from New York City, and my mother was from Sydney, Australia. My grandfather was born in the east end of London, so I went to boarding school in England, and anyway, as you can tell, sort of okay. all over the place. Okay, good. <laughs> So where did you get the idea to write a novel about Li Bai? Well, I first became interested in Li Bai, Du Fu, and the other Tang poets when I was studying Chinese in Taiwan in 1980. Hmm. <laughs> Seems like a long time ago. I stumbled across a book called Li Bai and Du Fu, a Penguin classic. It's a wonderful little book written in the 40s, I think, by an English scholar. Yeah, that was Arthur Cooper. Yeah, one of those perfect little pieces of popular academic writing, which are when an academic takes a subject that's absolutely passionate for him and manages to convey that in a way mm. that other people can access, which is actually surprisingly unusual. He wrote a very accessible, a short book too, with a bunch of translations of his own of both of these guys. He tries to approach it in terms that are accessible for Western readers. So he mm. talks about Levi as being Dionysian, i.e. free-flowing, impulsive, Whereas Dufu is more Apollo, Apollo, <laughs> Apollonian, uh, Apollonian, like Apollo, yes, yeah. Apollo, creative but much more structured, less impulsive. 
Now, Li Bai is sometimes called the poet immortal,、mm. and Du Fu is sometimes called sage poet or poet historian.、Mm-hmm. And I think they're two very fascinating characters. And in fact, you do create the relationship in your novel between them. So, would you say that Li Bai is the most famous poet China has ever produced? Well, I think a lot of Chinese people would debate that, but certainly he and Du Fu are the most famous pair of poets. And if you had to cite anybody, probably I don't know. I mean, there's always, especially from that period, there's Su Dongpo and Wang Wei and a whole bunch of them.、Mm. But yeah, he's certainly the most notorious, let us say,、yeah. because of his Li Bai. He was a rebel. He was famous for being a wanderer. In his youth, he was something of a swordsman. There's、mm. a long tradition in Chinese history of the wandering swordsman, almost like a knight errant, almost、mm. Arthurian, actually, in the sense that they would defend the helpless. That was the idea of the tradition. Li Bai was one of the reasons I picked him was particularly was because he's most identifiable to a Western audience because he fits in with a certain artistic tradition, our idea of an artist, which of course is only a creation of the last couple of hundred years or 150 years.、Mm. Artist as rebel, artist as nonconformist, and so on. But he really was like that. And the most striking thing about him was, in an age when to be a man, to be a fully realized man, intellectual, was to be to write poetry, was one of the greatest poetry and calligraphy, the great achievements、mm. of the time.、Mm. But the other half, and obviously this is what my book is about, is the fact that he refused to take the imperial exams and become、yeah. a scholar. One of the difficulties of writing the book was trying to get into the mindset of the time because it wasn't as though you could become a doctor or a scientist or a any number of other things. There was only one route that well-educated men took, and that was to take the imperial exams and become a, basically a bureaucrat and official.、Mm. It's called China's golden age during、mm-hmm. the Tang Dynasty, and sure, it was basically China's apotheosis. And in fact, until now, the most international. This particular time was when. The Silk Road, which led from Venice all the way to the then capital of of China, Chang'an, was flourishing the most.、Mm. Open, phenomenal numbers of people. I mean, Chang'an in those days had Jews, Arabs, Central Asians, Vietnamese people from what is now Indonesia from the islands. There was extensive training going on, and in fact, the people who ruled China, the ruling house, were, in fact, Li Bai's name, his surname in Chinese, is the same as the. Gentleman who founded the Tang Dynasty,、mm. so he would call the imperial princes cousins. As a matter of fact,、mm. I'm not sure how he got away with that. But the other reasons was that the ruling house was so strongly still identified with the steppes and with basically Turkic blood, not what would now be Han Chinese. Things were very fluid. For example, the other thing is that until nowadays, women were the freest they had ever been in China and were to be until now in Chinese society. And this is famously recognized by the fact that. When one imperial princess was being approached by someone for marriage, they had to go and find her because she was out hunting.、Huh. So obviously, compared to the way that women were locked away in the imperial household and not allowed to talk to anybody except for eunuchs, for example, this is a very, very free age. And、mm. as a consequence, there was this wonderful mixing of cultures and an explosion of creativity, which I guess we compare to the Renaissance. I was reading the Three Kingdoms romance,、mm. and I. Read a description of that being seventy percent fact and thirty percent fiction. If you had to give that percentage to a floating life,、mm. what would you what would you give it? Fifty fifty. Fifty fifty. Okay, fifty fact and fifty fiction. But the trouble is, even the stuff that we think we know, like his birthplace, you know, China's just had this terrible disaster of an earthquake, and、yeah. one of the places that was deeply affected has a big Li Bai museum right in Sichuan County because they claim that he was born there. 
He certainly lived in Sichuan, in that particular area, right where the earthquake is. In Jiangyou, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah. Was that the city? And I put him in Sichuan in the book. Right. In those days, it was called Shu. Nobody can even agree where he was born, when he moved. And that's why, particularly in his youth, I take a number of liberties, basically having fun with trying to use things that he either had in his poems or were famous myths of the time. For example, mm. riding on the back of birds, which yes. is a great immortal... Yes. You know, the Taoist immortals were all supposed to have ridden on the back of giant swans, so I made it an eagle, but, you know, the same idea, right? Yes. So trying to incorporate that. Levi was much given to exaggeration, let us say politely, and we don't know much about his life. As somebody once remarked, he's not quite as lucky as Shakespeare in the sense <laughs> that we know virtually nothing about Shakespeare, so you can't impugn him. But one of Levi's cousins after his death said that only one in ten of his poems survived. Wow. So, you know, there may have been, in fact, biographical stuff, there are these huge gaps. We really just do mm, not know what happened. And there's very little biographical detail in his poetry, as opposed to Dufu, for example. And in fact, I often wonder why I didn't write about Dufu, because there's much more detail. But then I realized the reason was that I could make more stuff up. Yes, well, I've certainly enjoyed reading all those far-fetched tales. And I think this book lends itself very well to dramatization as an audio book. And the way you tell the story is that Li Bai is dictating his life to his scribe, Wang Long, while floating on a river barge into exile. Here we're going to play an excerpt from episode 5. We've put your novel into 36 episodes. And this is a dialogue between the poet and Wang Long. Court poets, they called themselves, as though that was a badge of honor not a mark of shame. Court poets, indeed. Prisoners, poisoners, pompous poltroons, shit-eaters and ass-lickers, the lot of them! Li Bai splutters to a halt, glaring so fiercely that a servant who has appeared in the hatchway where his gaze is directed blanches and ducks back down the stairs. Sir, Wang Long says hesitantly, Academician Lee, that is, I'm sorry, but I don't know the characters for shit or ass. <laughs> and of course, as you mentioned, there's a great deal of mythology about Levi's life, and you've certainly created some very colourful tales to contribute to that. Along with riding on the back of an eagle, he is imprisoned and breaks out. He gets abducted by bandits, he's hunted by imperial troops, and he also kills at least three men along the way. Now, the great love of Levi's life is a tavern singer named Peony, in your novel, who goes on to become a courtesan at the Emperor's court with the name of Xue Tao. Tell me, was she a real person? Well, yes, but unfortunately she was born the, the year that Levi died. In fact, the poems that I use of hers are real poems from a very famous Chinese poet who was a courtesan exactly pretty much as mm. I described, but she was pretty much born right around then, so she lived after, that. but she was such an irresistible figure, and I enjoyed mm -hmm. her poetry so much that I basically, I felt that he needed a foil, mm. somebody of his own or close to his own stature, because obviously a man like that is going to be pretty unbearable half the mm. time. And he sounds like, I mean, he must have been a total pain to be around half the time, you know, rather like, say, Churchill, for example. Mm. When you read biographies of him, he was a wonderfully entertaining man at the dinner table, but basically, if you wanted to say anything yourself, you were in trouble. So mm. you had to let him, and I'm sure Levi was like court. that. Whole court, exactly. So I figured that he needed somebody who would be a foil and be of his intellectual and poetic stature. 
So I moved her back and used some of her poems and translated those. So she's an example of what you were saying earlier, that women had much more、mm. freedom and ability to express themselves in that era. Than at other times in China's history, absolutely, and very unusual ability to break free. And she was able to set herself up as a courtesan, and a long way removed from being a prostitute. Courtesan、mm-hmm. is the right word in the sense that she would only take lovers that she chose, and manage to set up, earn enough money, and also gain a reputation for herself as a poet in her own right.、Yeah. So it was a very unusual time, and it didn't last that long, actually. <laughs>、hmm. The two of them come together four times before they finally consummate their affair. And here's an excerpt from episode twenty-two. Peony's eyes shining so bright, her cheeks so scarlet with emotion and wine, that eventually I reached over and stroked her face, saying she must be burning up. She grasped my hand, held it for a moment, then pulled me toward her. I leaned forward. And stroked her shoulder through the thin performance gown, my fingers shaking just slightly as they pulled the robe open and down her shoulder. She shrugging out of it so that her shoulder was bare and her silk chemise exposed. I touched the bare skin of her upper arm. So go to episode twenty-two. You'll hear where they go with that. And finally, Li Bai makes it to the imperial court in Chang'an, which we. Now know today as Xi'an, and that I believe was China's capital at、mm, the time. Yeah. All right. Here's an excerpt from episode twenty-six when Li Bai first makes his mark as the last contestant in a competition between four poets at a banquet hosted by the Emperor Xuanzong. Just then, the butler called out my name. I rose, my heart full of joy, for I knew that whatever I produced, it would be far better than anything that had come before. I strode to the front, bowed to the emperor, and then walked to the butler. I'm going to do this a little differently, I told him in an undertone. I'll read my poem out as I write it. He looked sceptical. What? No revisions? Straight from the brush? That's right. He shrugged his shoulders. As you wish, sir," he said, then called out in his booming voice, "Silence for the gentleman who wishes to read out his poem as it flows from his brush." He stepped aside, and I saw that I had piqued the interest of the jaded crowd. Their faces were turned toward me expectantly. The only sounds were a few curious whisperers and the far-off clash of dishes being returned to the kitchens. I stood there in silence for almost a minute until a few of the guests began to shift and mutter. Then I opened my mouth as wide as I could, and let out a shriek. Yeah! Yeah! Sheer danger, high struggle. The road to shoe is hard, harder than scaling the blue sky. And that's also the time when he encounters both the emperor Xuanzong, and the emperor's concubine Yang Guifei. So I gather that Yang Guifei is also a real-life character. She's one of the most famous women in Chinese history, actually. When he gets to the court, Li Bai kind of has a honeymoon period, right? And he's very much in favour. He's helping the emperor to win the cockfights,、uh, mm-hmm. for the emperor's cocks to win the cockfights, 
And but then I gather he starts to try to get involved in politics, right? And that's when the honeymoon period starts to go right sour for him. Yeah, one of the themes of the book is this idea that he's conflicted over his desire. One of the things I found fascinating about him was this this idea that he actually refused to take the examinations, but always clearly wanted to have that recognition and to be an official because he couldn't help. You know, it was in his blood essentially. To be a man was not just to be a poet, but it was also to be recognized, to be a governor, to wear the different badges of office, and so on. And he clearly, there's no question that he always wanted that, but never wanted to take the exam. There have been many arguments about why he didn't want to do it. It's clear that he was intelligent enough. It could be that he didn't want to sit down and do all the study. Perhaps he didn't want to do that. Perhaps other people have speculated, and I think that's probably close to the mark, is that he wondered whether if he didn't come out first in the exams. <laughs> He didn't want to take the exams if he wasn't going to come out first, and he might not have because, as we all know, taking exams is a whole different art from, from excelling academically. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So there is this kind of dichotomy, this struggle in his character. I found that absolutely fascinating because, again, he wanted imperial recognition. He struggled for it, became involved in politics. Clearly, wasn't I think suited for it. And this mm. is pretty much, this is fairly well established. This part of it is factual. He was made a member of the Academy, the Forest of Writing Brushes, as it's mm. called. He did do well for a while, and then he seems to have become involved in some kind of palace intrigue and basically was sent away with a flea in his ear. Yeah. Well, here's what may be considered the last straw for Levi's relationship with the court when he is very drunk at a banquet and recites the following poem in episode 33. On and on we march and fight, straying ten thousand miles from home, until the three armies are aged and worn. The fighting never ends. We struggle and die on the battlefield, where maimed horses howl their pain to heaven, and ravens and kites peck at the entrails of the fallen. Flying up with intestines trailing from their beaks to drape them over withered tree branches, a whole generation has been snuffed out in the desert sands, and for all our sacrifice, the generals have accomplished nothing. The Huns still mass at the desert's edge. Surely you know that warfare is an accursed tool. The wise ruler rarely picks up. The hall resounded with a deadly, fearful silence when I finished—a silence that swelled into a screaming crescendo as I walked back to my place and sat down. So that's Levi's kind of swan song at the court, and of course that poem gets him into a lot of trouble. And so he's very outspoken about his opposition to war and warmongering by the empire. Is that something that you gleaned was his opinion at the time? Absolutely, that's one of his most famous poems. And I always wondered. There's no evidence that he actually served in the army or anything like that. But he seems to have had a great acquaintance with. He must have known a lot of soldiers who told him stories. It required enormous amounts of sacrifice from soldiers. It, Distances, which I think, again, in trying to get into the minds of people who lived at that time, it's very hard to conceive. Effectively, once you're out on the border, if you're risking your life somewhere, to get home would take you a year、yeah. or more. It's hard to conceive quite how far away that was. It's almost like 
I think the only equivalent would almost be space travel for us, you know, something yeah. that, you know, living on the moon, literally. So the bitterness of people who saw all their companions die under those circumstances would be substantial. And I think this poem captures that, that sense of frustration and bitterness. And what a morale problem if you've got troops that are a year from home. Indeed, yeah. How are they going and... to be enthusiastic about fighting on top of that? Right. And in fact, Dufu, I think, was quite vehement in some of his poetry against warmongering. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Even, if anything, even more so. He writes on the subject lengthily. And again, one of his most famous poems is, well, I think it's, We Washed Our Swords in the Pamir Streams, which, you know, the Pamirs of the Mountains in Afghanistan. So it's an mm. awfully long way from, from anywhere. And do you think since the time of the Tang Dynasty, with poets like Li Bai and Dufu making political points or points about imperial policy in their poetry has there been that tradition has that tradition been kept alive since then or is it alive today a very interesting point the tradition of expressing through poetry but in general of officials being morally obliged by the confucian code to do so is extraordinarily strong in chinese history and definitely carries through until now and when you talk about the confucian tradition of course i'm thinking that li bai is actually quite opposed and, to some of the Confucianists who are in power at the time. Very much so. And, you know, like any society, it has to have its yin and yang. It has to have its opposite. Mm -hmm. So there have to be rebels. And one of the reasons that I've always felt that he was so venerated is because he's actually relatively rare. Pretty much everybody else in the society would work within. And that's the tradition in China is working within to change things rather than rebelling from the outside. But you do have to remember the most famous legend in China is the Monkey King. And, of course, the Monkey King is also a character who was completely a rebel, overturned the court, ate the peaches of immortality, generally behaved the way he wanted, and finally had to bring in Buddha to tame him and put him in jail for years and so on and so forth. So there are, I mean, Levi and I don't think they're exactly comparable, but, you know, the great rebels in Chinese history do exist as exemplars of going outside of the system. And so that brings me to my last point. Do you have other books out there? Yes, I've definitely got a couple of ideas, one of which will be actually about the Monkey King. Like all the great legends, it's an eternal source of inspiration for people to write, but this would be set in contemporary China. Okay. The modern Monkey King. Right. If I ever find time to write it, which I hope to do. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't tell my employers that. All right. Well, uh, Simon, it's been a great pleasure, and we've had some wonderful insights today into the world of Li Bai and the Tang Dynasty. And thank you so much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It was actually a great pleasure to remember and hear some of those, your excellent narration of it. I really enjoyed that. Thank, Thank you. you. That was my interview from Beijing with author Simon Elegant, who wrote A Floating Life, The Adventures of Li Poor. I close out each episode by announcing a book giveaway on Amazon. And here is an excerpt from today's giveaway. It's an adaptation of Li Bai's poem, Drinking Alone Under the Moon, which I have reworked as a Shakespearean form sonnet. Among the flowers is a pot of wine. With no one else here, I pour for myself. My cup up to the shining moon incline. My shadow joins this fellowship of health. The moon, unpractised in the drunkard's art, traces my movements with tentative tread. Yet 
moon and shadows share in friendship's part as seasons usher springtime to her bed. While I sing, the moon lingers lovingly. The shadow jumps while I dance reelingly. We share our cheer in sobriety and after drunkenness part company. Forever we shall have this freedom when, afar off in the heavens, we meet again. That poem was from today's giveaway on Amazon. It's well-versed to Shakespeare, poets and the performing arts, free today only, Sunday, January the 27th. It's not necessarily a cover-to-cover read, you can browse it if you prefer, but however you choose to read it, of course I'd welcome your appreciation with a review you post on Amazon. Until next week, this has been Abdiel Leroy. Thank you.